In March 1966, William Manchester boarded a Trailways bus in Connecticut bound for New York. He was lugging a suitcase that weighed 77 pounds. Inside were five copies of a 1,200-page manuscript of what would be one of the blockbuster books of the 20th century, his exhaustive work on the Kennedy assassination. Writing the book, it was called The Death of a President, had been exhausting and heartbreaking, and when he was finished, Manchester thought his troubles were over. In fact, they were just beginning. And for Jackie, the book's looming publication would bring new troubles and the first dent in her once untouchable image. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. In a prior episode, I mentioned that in 1964, Manchester had been asked by the Kennedy family to write the definitive book on the assassination. Their take was, this is important. This will be the book that uh, we want people to read because there'll be others and they'll be sensational and incorrect. And we want to bring this out. Paul Reed was a longtime friend of and later co-author with Manchester. Bill met her in February of 64. She had been a widow for all of three months. The historian and Marine veteran took on the project and for the next two years worked around the clock, 15 hours a day, seven days a week. This was the 1960s. No computers, no internet, just grind it out day after day. He held himself to the highest standards of journalism. Every T crossed, every I dotted. Uh, and, and you see that as you read Death of a President, like, my God, the details. Manchester interviewed hundreds of people. Many were emotionally distraught when discussing the assassination. He did everything from walk the entire motorcade route in Dallas to examining the emergency room where JFK was pronounced dead and the morgue in Bethesda where the autopsy was performed. He even had the first coffin President Kennedy was placed in uncrated for inspection. All of this is reflected in the book, which I've described before as incredibly granular, powerful, and at times terrifying. But Jackie and Robert Kennedy would have major problems with the manuscript, and this led to trouble. More on this later. Meantime, Jackie continued with her jet setting, roaring off from the New York airport that now bore her husband's name, JFK, skiing in the Rockies, then Switzerland, then hopping down to Rome for an audience with the Pope. And despite her understandable antipathy towards guns, she even went on a fox hunting trip with friends. Jackie said she wanted all of this to be low profile. Of course, none of it was. Photographers followed her everywhere. 
in Argentina for Easter. One photographer caught her changing into a bathing suit at a private beach. At least one South American tabloid published photos of her backside, but newspapers in America refused. They wouldn't even run pictures of Jackie smoking, which she did constantly. They remained protective of the young widow. Then it was off to Spain, this time for some very decidedly high-profile events, including a gala in Seville, where she ran into Princess Grace of Monaco. The former American movie star, just five months older than Jackie, was now European royalty. Let's go a bit deeper here on the relationship between Grace and Jackie. Grace claimed to know JFK almost as long as Jackie did. She told this story in 1965 about the first time they met. The first time was before I became president, during that year that he was in the hospital in New York with his back. I had been to a dinner party where I'd met Mrs. Kennedy and sister and her sister for the first time. They asked me to go to the hospital with them to pay a visit to help cheer him up. They wanted me to go into his room and say I was the new night nurse. That was a quaint idea. Did you? Well, I, I hesitated. I was terribly embarrassed. And eventually, I was sort of pushed into the room by the two girls. I introduced myself, but he had recognized me in, at once and, and couldn't have been sweeter and more quick to put me at ease. But is Grace telling the full story here? Some Kennedy biographers have written about a torrid affair between JFK and Grace in the early 1950s. There's speculation that Kennedy actually wanted to marry the starlet, but that Joe Kennedy Sr. said it would not be good for Jack's political career. After all the fever of publicity, the acres of newsprint, the fashion notes, and the jewel robberies, the great day approaches at last when Grace Kelly of Philadelphia, USA, will become the bride of Rainier, Prince of Monaco. The writer Gore Vidal, who knew both Jack and Jackie, claimed that while they were watching coverage of Grace's 1956 wedding, Jack said something to the effect that I could have married her, which obviously upset Jackie. After the assassination in 1963, Grace paid her respects to JFK's grave at Arlington and then paid a call on Jackie at the White House bearing Christmas gifts for Caroline and John Jr., But Jackie, distraught and busy packing and preparing to move out, declined to see her. That's the background. Mrs. John F. Kennedy, looking happy and radiant, arrives in Seville, Spain, to attend the fashionable Feria Debutante Ball. U.S. Ambassador Angier Biddle-Duke accompanies her. Now, in Spain in April 1966, their paths crossed again at a Red Cross gala. Another guest arriving for the gala ball is Princess Grace of Monaco, who is greeted by an equally enthusiastic throng. And so excitement builds before the start of this important social and charitable event. These two women who had risen to the top, one married a prince, the other a future president, were due to sit together at the head table. Even though Grace was the event's hostess, reports said that when Jackie arrived, the princess scurried into a powder room for an hour. The Reniers de Monaco occupy the royal box. Mrs. Kennedy adds dignity and great charm to the event as 61 young debutantes from half a dozen countries are presented to the guests. The setting creates a modern fairy tale mood. Jackie and Grace sat three feet from each other, but when you look at old film, you never see them chatting. Grace especially seems to be staring either straight ahead or to her left, 
away from Jackie. Reporters noticed this, and at one point, when they did bump into each other, they avoided eye contact. Kelly appeared unsmiling, while Jackie, who by now was far more famous than the princess, wore a demure smile. Such was life at the top of the 1960s social order. Jackie also took in a bullfight, an interesting choice given the violence and cruelty involved. When the terrible moment came, when the matador sliced into the animal, Jackie grimaced and looked away. At one point, a matador, covered in blood, turned to face Jackie. She gasped and put her hand to her face. And yet she called the event exciting and beautiful. When this was reported in the United States, Jackie got some rare public criticism. One Humane Society executive even referenced her husband's murder, saying, quote, it is a sad and singularly ironic footnote in our age of modern violence that Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy, of all people who has seen the barbarism of the present era at such tragic firsthand, should now see fit to condone and even compliment the bullfight. Jackie seemed unfazed by the criticism. One reporter who covered the trip said she was, quote, anxious to avail herself of pleasure and privilege and wasn't taking into account the consequences of public evaluation. In other words, Jackie seemed unaware or perhaps not particularly bothered at what the public thought. This demeanor would soon cause problems. Meantime, Jackie's relationship with John Warnicke, the architect who was designing President Kennedy's permanent grave at Arlington, continued. Here's Paul Turner, professor of art emeritus at Stanford University, Warnicke's alma mater. At one point in 1966, Jackie flew to Hawaii and spent a month with Warnicke at his house in the hills outside Honolulu. Ostensibly, she was staying with a couple of her friends there. Jackie had never been to Hawaii and was enchanted. At one point, she and Warnicke stole away to a small cottage on Kauai for a few days, perhaps the most lush and romantic of all the islands. She thought things were going well, but they weren't. Turner says that Warnicke's business was suffering. Even though he had a large architectural firm, he suddenly discovered in 1966 that the firm was in serious financial trouble. Warnicke had neglected his company. Not enough money was coming in, Turner said. And he, and he also mentioned the large amount of time he had spent with Jackie. Uh, back to his, uh, his remarks, he said, all this and the economic situation of the time were financially catching up with me. I had no other choice but to return to my main San Francisco base in the fall of 1966 and deal with this sudden crisis. He broke the news to Jackie. In Warnicke's unpublished memoir that was written after Jackie's death, he says that when he broke the news to her and said he couldn't continue seeing her the way they had been seeing each other, they were both upset. He also said he realized that Jackie needed a secure and protected life and that this required a lot of money, which he did not have. By the uh, following summer, Warnicke was pulling the firm together again, as he later said. He still went back east occasionally to see Jackie, but, quote, life was moving us in different directions. In the following years, Warnicke and Jackie continued to keep in touch and occasionally to see each other. And there's evidence that they maintained very affectionate feelings for each other for the rest of their lives. 
and regretted that things hadn't worked out differently for them. Every night, Olympic Airways super fan jets head for Europe and the Middle East. On board, there's plenty to do. We planned it that way. After all, Olympic is the airline of Greece. As Warnicke stepped back to rebuild his business, Aristotle Onassis was busy expanding his. His airline, Olympic Airways, began crossing the Atlantic. It meant that the Greek tycoon would be spending more time in New York. He took an apartment at the fancy Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue, about a mile south of Jackie's home. From time to time, he would attend dinner parties at her place, and if Jackie happened to be in Paris, they would have dinner at his apartment with sweeping views of the Arc de Triomphe and Eiffel Tower. Onassis was so protective of Jackie's privacy that he never told his kids about her visits and ordered his servants to stay away while he served dinner himself. It was not a romantic relationship at this time, probably not, but they traveled in the same elite circles and often ran into each other. I began this episode by talking about William Manchester and his soon-to-be blockbuster book about the assassination, The Death of a President, it was called. Manchester was so focused on the 1,200-page book, so driven, so intense, that he had a nervous breakdown at one point and had to be hospitalized. When he was finally finished, he thought he was done. But as John Manchester, his son, tells me, that feeling of relief didn't last long. I forget what the first, it was probably his agent that called him and said there was a problem. But that was the beginning of a, a, a real storm of, uh, of, of stuff. It went on for nine straight months. It turns out that neither Jackie nor Robert Kennedy could bring themselves to read the death of a president. Others read it for them and said that there were problems. Uh, why was Jackie and Robert upset. I mean, they, they asked him to write the book. He, he wrote the book. They knew it would be a difficult, painful subject. Why were they upset? Bobby Kennedy had a very serious political problem with Lyndon Johnson. And it was considered that the passage is about Lyndon Johnson, which uh, I, I can't judge, but uh, they, they were, it was, it was considered that they might be construed as critical. And if Bobby Kennedy was going to run for president, he did not need that sort of baggage. And Lyndon Johnson, as I'm sure you know, was a formidable politician and, and a powerful man and somebody you just didn't want to cross. So that was Bobby's thing. Jackie's uh, motivation was that she just didn't want to deal with it, uh, a kind of, you know, denial. She had just, when she when it started, she had just gotten back from a uh, trip around the world. And I, you can imagine that she... Uh, had gotten away from it, from the horror of the assassination to some extent, and here it was in her face. And so between, you know, what, what, what can't be answered is what, what, what was the calculation, what was the dynamic between those two reasons to suppress the book? You know, how did that work out? There was more. Jackie found out that Manchester had written about deeply personal details that she would have preferred stay out of the book. Among them, the heartbreaking story of how Caroline Kennedy, just days short of her sixth birthday, learned of her father's death. Manchester also described personal items that the children had placed in their father's coffin the day before his funeral. A handwritten note from Caroline said how much her daddy would be missed and that she loved him very much. 
John, the day before his third birthday, just scribbled. Meantime, Jackie placed some personal trinkets that had meant so much to her and the man who now lay in the gleaming mahogany box. It was all deeply, intensely personal. Jackie guarded her children like a lioness guarded her cubs, perfectly understandable, and that Manchester was now writing about all this brought back the pain. Again, here's John Manchester. What you're bringing up here uh, as we talk about this is, uh, it, it seems to me like she had some reasonable, what, what you can consider to be quite reasonable requests there. Uh, when you get into the stuff with uh, with Bobby, it gets you know it gets a little little messier. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is that there was tremendous. Okay, uh, on her part, but also on Bobby's part, there was a tremendous. And my father's part. What am I saying? There was a tremendous amount of emotion. These are all very rational, very intelligent people, but they all had very strong feelings that you know came from the time of the assassination and. You know, people get pretty worked up, you know. Well, I think it's hard. Half a century, it's been nearly 60 years now since the assassination. And it's hard for a lot of people who were most Americans now weren't even born then. And it's something that literally is uh, something only in the history books. And I think people don't realize, uh, and as you say, your father and obviously the Kennedys did, what a shattering event this was. It just uh, ripped heart out of the country in a way that really, maybe perhaps 9-11, I don't know, but really nothing has done since. And I don't think people understand just how painful a period that was. And that sort of came through in the struggle to get this book uh, written, I think. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. She met with William Manchester at Hyannis and pleaded that this objectionable material be taken out. She didn't even want it mentioned that she smoked. At one point, Jackie told Manchester that she thought the book would be bound in black and put away on dark, dusty library shelves. Obviously unrealistic, but a reflection of just how much she wanted, she needed to forget those terrible days. Jackie was also angered to learn that Manchester's publisher, Harper and Rowe, sold the magazine rights to the book to Look Magazine for the 2020 equivalent of nearly five and a half million dollars. Here's Paul Reed. Jackie didn't like this, as she perceived it, as you said, this cashing in. In our next episode, In a Cold Dark Sea, for Jackie, A Brush with Death. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my new book on Jackie between her two marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O, available everywhere. And if you're enjoying this show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it. Special thanks this week to Paul Reed and John Manchester. Thanks to our producer, Hannah Ray Leach, sound designer and engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening.
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.